Chapters 40 and 41 of The Barnabys in America by Francis Milton Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 40 A Skillful Maneuver Skillfully Executed A Pleasant Supper Party It was impossible for Major Allen Barnaby to watch the painful languor of movement with which his charming wife withdrew from his side without admiration. Long as he had been her husband, he really did admire her exceedingly. Nor was the feeling of that light and idle kind which leads to nothing. He felt all her claim upon his ready cooperation in the scheme she had sketched out, and instantly began his share of the work by seeking Tornarino, and explaining to him both the business he had to perform and the reason for it. This was not a sort of business on which the graceful Don was at all likely to be dull of comprehension, and the Major left him on seeing his pale and trembling Barnaby emerge again from the lady's cabin, quite satisfied with the ready acquiescence he expressed. In the next moment the attentive husband was by his pallid lady's side, and having, according to order, laid her gently upon the sofa, he bustled off to seek his daughter. And now it was that the greatest difficulty arose. Patty, upon being assured that her mother was seasick, or lake-sick, and desired her assistance, burst forth in her usual style of free remonstrance upon the absurdity of supposing that she could do her any good. "'Lor, Papa!' she exclaimed. "'How you do spoil her!' I don't believe she's any more sick than I am. Why, she ate like a wolf at breakfast. I do wish you would let me alone, Papa. I want to stay here till Tornorino comes back. He said he was only going for a minute, and he'll think I am tumbled overboard if he does not find me here. It has been hinted before that the Major, from some little feeling of paternal weakness, did not wish that his daughter should be made fully acquainted with all the maneuverings to which he occasionally found himself compelled to have recourse when his affectionate regard for the welfare of his family induced him to practice any trifling irregularity in his monetary transactions. It was this feeling which now embarrassed him. Patty, as everybody knows, was a very quick, intelligent young woman, and a very few words would have sufficed to make her comprehend the whole business. But Major Allen Barnaby did not like to speak these few words. He knew, however, that the cooperation of his daughter in the rather hazardous scheme now afoot was absolutely necessary, and therefore, after looking at her with an air of perplexity for half a minute, he said, "'Come, come, Patty,' You must not only be a good girl, but a very particularly good girl just now, or we shall get into a worse scrape than you think for. After you all left New York, I got among a set of worthless chaps, which it is very difficult to help doing sometimes in a strange country, and we got quarreling, and as ill luck would have it, one of the fellows insisted upon it that I should fight a duel with him, which I am sorry to say ended fatally. I am sure I did not know it at the time, but I have been told since that the United States government never forgives a man who kills another in a duel, and I am therefore now in the greatest possible danger of being taken up and executed. Lord, Papa, how horrid! exclaimed Patty, looking a little terrified. But what has all this to do with Ma's being sick? A great deal, my dear, as you will find, if you will but have patience to listen to me, he replied. I have discovered within this hour, Patty, that I am suspected by a man on board, and my only chance of saving myself is by getting on shore disguised as a woman. Oh, goodness, what fun! exclaimed Madame Tornarino, clapping her hands with an air of great hilarity. But, lor, Pa, they'll be sure to find you out. I hope not, my dear, said the Major gravely, but this will depend entirely on the manner in which my family assist me. 
He then explained to her the mode in which he intended to proceed, endeavouring to impress upon her mind the absolute necessity of silence and caution amongst them all, and the conversation ended at last by her saying in a whisper, but very earnestly, "'Well, pap, it shan't be my fault if you are hanged, you may depend upon that.' Perfectly contented by this affectionate assurance, the major then dismissed her, and the subsequent scenes of the drama followed exactly in the order which Mrs. Allen Barnaby had laid down, and without any blundering whatever on the part of the dramatis personae, till the critical moment arrived when the major, with one arm resting on that of Tornarino, and the other raised in order to hold a pocket-handkerchief to his mouth, stepped forth with a languid air from the ladies' cabin, and began his hazardous progress through the long saloon appropriated to the gentlemen. Nothing could possibly be better than the arrangement of his drapery. The large shawl thrown over his shoulders completely disguised the outline of his person, and perhaps no man of his age, measuring five feet ten and a half, ever contrived to contract his limbs more skilfully than did Major Allen Barnaby as he slowly moved onwards. It was probably the perfect success with which he enacted his wife's attitude as he dropped his head a little on one side, while his feathers and flowing veil drooped also, that overset the gravity of Patty, which, till that moment, she had sustained admirably. But then, for one short moment, she forgot herself in exclaiming aloud, "'Oh, my goodness, how funny!' She clapped her hands in her usual joyous style and laughed outright. The admirable presence of mind of the dawn, however, prevented any fatal effects from this thoughtless sally. "'There is nothing to laugh, my love, in the sickness,' he said, shaking his head very gravely, while the really suffering major uttered so sad and womanly a sigh, that if anybody had thought about them at all, it could only have been to deprecate the hard-hearted levity of the young woman, who could find amusement in her feeble mother's sufferings. Fortunately, however, the two or three persons who were scattered through the long room were too much occupied by their own concerns to pay any attention to the group and they made their way to the top of the stairs just as the first rush of the persons intending to land at Cleveland was elbowing and shouldering its way across the plank. Either from the fear that a too close juxtaposition with those who were jostling one another as they crossed might betray him, or else from the wish to be perfectly consistent in the representation of his assumed character, the major held back for a moment till a dozen or so of the most eager had passed the plank. Then, still preserving with admirable steadiness of demeanour the timid face of a suffering woman, he too crossed it, Tornorino very carefully stepping backwards as he preceded him, and the penitent Patty following, looking as grave as a judge. In this manner they very safely reached the bank, but just as the delighted major felt his feet firmly planted on the sod, and while he was thinking that he might now venture to recover himself a little, and take under shadow of the darkness a tolerably vigorous step forward, he felt somewhat a heavy arm upon his shoulder, and fully expected in the next moment to see the long visage of Mr. Gabriel Monkton peering at him. "'Can I be of any use to you, ladies?' said a voice at his ear, which even at that moment of agitation he felt certain was not the voice of the dreaded Gabriel. "'You seem a little bewildered, I think, and if I can be of any service you may command me.' These very obliging words, added by the same voice, which though certainly not that of Mr. Gabriel Monkton, did not appear to the major to be perfectly unknown, caused him to turn his head towards the speaker, and even to hazard the danger of rendering visible the pearl under his muffler, by raising his veil for the purpose of obtaining as good a view as the waning light would permit of the features of this courteous stranger. 
On turning his eyes in the direction from whence the voice came, he perceived a stout-looking, country-wife sort of a body, with a shabby old bonnet pulled low over her face, a very worn-out shawl, a common cotton gown pulled up through the pocket-holes, and a pair of fat, naked arms, with sleeves pushed up considerably above the elbow. The woman stepped back as soon as the major's eye fell upon her, and addressing Patty, who followed close behind, said, "'You are a very pretty young lady, upon my word.' "'Would you like to have your fortune told, miss?' "'Miss, indeed!' cried the indignant married woman, who even in that moment of peril could not permit such a blunder to pass unnoticed. "'What a fool of a woman you must be to fancy I am an unmarried girl. We don't want any of your help, you may depend upon that, so you may get away, and let us walk on by ourselves in peace and quiet.' "'Walk on in peace, my pretty dear, by all means,' said the woman." but don't be so fond of quiet as to send off good company. Major Allen Barnaby, notwithstanding the very good reasons he had for wishing to advance beyond the reach of a recall from the steamboat, nevertheless lingered on the way for the purpose of hearing the above dialogue, and when it had reached this point, he suddenly stopped, and having looked round him on all sides, without perceiving any one pursuing, or appearing particularly to notice them, he cautiously pronounced the word, wife, at no great distance from the ear of the female who had thus beset Patty. "'It is not every wise child that knows its own mother,' said the voice of Mrs. Allen Barnaby, from beneath the humble weeds of the seeming stranger. "'Nevertheless, a runaway gentleman, it seems, may know his own wife.' "'How could you be so stupid, Patty? However, this is no time to stand mumming and making fun,' continued my heroine, for she indeed it was, who had thus unceremoniously addressed the party." "'Look along the road, Major,' she added, applying herself to the ear of the tall lady who still rested on the arm of Don Tornorino. "'Look along the road, and you will see in what direction the danger lies. You and I must not go that way. Stop one minute, all of you, and I will tell you what must be done. You and I, Madame Feathers and Lace, must just betake ourselves to the shelter of that particularly dark-looking corner yonder, between that barn-looking building and the trees, and there I flatter myself.' we may contrive both to hide ourselves till the steamboat is off again, and then, by the help of this basket and bundle, make ourselves, both of us, more fit to be seen. You, Tornorino, and Patty must immediately run back to look after the luggage. Here is some silver for you to pay one of those porters there that are galloping with their trucks down to the landing-place to look after a job. When you have got everything on shore, five trunks, two portmanteaus, three hampers, and four carpet-bags, remember, when you have got it all together, take it to the first handsome-looking hotel you come to. There, look, Tornorino, it must be that house where, dark as it is getting, you can distinguish so many people before the door. Take all the things there, and as soon as you have heard the bell ring, and seen the boat fairly off, the Major and I will come strolling up, as if we had but just that minute stepped on shore and you and Patty had better be on the lookout for us. Even Patty seemed at this moment to feel that it was a master spirit who thus rapidly dictated what was to be done, and with a greater degree of passive obedience than was at all usual to her, she quietly placed herself by her husband's side, took hold of his offered arm, and without another word being spoken by any of the party, they divided, and marched off exactly as my ready-witted heroine had commanded. The most intimate knowledge of the locality could not have enabled this admirable woman more judiciously to select a spot for arranging the attire of herself and husband than the one which she had thus instinctively chosen. No eye, no sound, 
no even imagined danger occurred to scare or interrupt them and several minutes before the parting bell of the steamboat was heard they were both of them attired in all respects exactly as they had been when they first stepped on board her the interval of waiting which followed was gratefully employed by the major in expressing to his charming wife a part at least of the admiration and tenderness which her admirable conduct had inspired nothing in fact could be more amiable than the manner in which these sentiments were uttered and received major and mrs allen barnaby were indeed a perfect pattern couple the signal for which they had waited having been at length heard and sufficient time allowed for the little wharf near which they had to pass to have recovered its usual tranquillity the excellently matched pair walked forth from the shelter of the lofty catalpa trees beneath which they had repaired their toilettes and one taking the bag and the other the basket with the careless air with which active-minded travellers do take bags and baskets on quitting steamboats they sauntered arm in arm first to the wharf and then from the wharf with the aspect and manner of intelligent and curious strangers desirous of looking about them and seeing everything that was to be seen in this manner they approached the washington's head hotel at the door of which they found the grinning patty and her more sober-minded spouse who both greeted them at the same moment the former by clapping her hands and exclaiming well done mon pa if you ain't two good ones the latter by gently observing that all oh, the things were come and rooms bespeak never had mrs allen barnaby walked up a room with more dignity than she now did that of the table d'hote of the washington's head it was nearly impossible at any time that she could pass unnoticed so peculiarly striking were her person and demeanour but it now was less possible than ever the triumph of success the pride of genius and the consciousness of noble daring brightened her eye and rendered firm her step every eye in the room was fixed upon her the observant major saw this and trembled but the same benignant destiny which had bestowed my heroine upon him as a wife seemed to guard him at this moment from any accident which might render this blessing abortive for not one of the passengers who had accompanied them from buffalo was in the room or even the house of those who had landed by far the greater number had returned on board and of the rest some had gone at once to their homes in the town of cleveland and the rest to some other of the hotels it was not immediately however that even our bold major ventured to look about him sufficiently to ascertain this important and very agreeable fact but at length as his modest glances reached further and further round the room he felt delightedly convinced that so it was anything more genial more domestically sociable more liberally cheering than this supper at the washington's head cleveland can scarcely be imagined the major ordered champagne the ladies declared it first-rate and the don whose happy temperament never required anything for the enjoyment of perfect felicity but the absence of want of all kinds and the presence of all such good things as his taste particularly approved was perfectly touching in his manner of partaking his repast and when he said as the last drop was drained from the second bottle into the glass of his august mother-in-law ah ma one little drop more for my petit it would have required a much harder heart than that of the major to have withstood the hint a third bottle of champagne was accordingly ordered and when it had vanished and not till then my heroine and her fair daughter retreated for the night leaving the major and his son-in-law to talk over the adventures of the last few days chapter forty one more skill required and more skill practised a dinner party as delightful as the supper party which preceded it it can surprise nobody to hear that mrs allen barnaby did not rise very early on the following morning 
she really had exerted herself greatly through the eventful day which had been passed on board the steamboat, and even the very act of taking what she felt to be needful refreshment afterwards contributed to the necessity of lengthened rest on the following morning. It was not, therefore, till past ten o'clock on that morning that my heroine was seen majestically descending the stairs of the hotel, adorned with very considerable care and elegance, and with an expression of countenance perfectly radiant from the effect of the meditations in which she had indulged during the time she had employed in dressing. Her position was, in truth, at this moment, such as could not fail to cheer the spirits of any woman possessed of such a mind as hers. No philosopher, whether ethical, moral, or military, could be more aware of the sinewy species of strength and power given by money than was my heroine, and never had she felt so delightful an assurance of having money at her command as at that moment. The very stairs, as they creaked beneath her tread, seemed to do her homage, while the glances of a group of men stationed at the street door, which stood open immediately in front of her as she descended, caused her to remember that, considering her size, she had a very well-formed foot, and thus, as is the case of the charming Musidora, a sense of self-approving beauty stole across her busy thought, and completed the happiness of the moment. But alas for the short-lived felicity of mortals! Scarcely had the smile suggested by the thought above alluded to dimpled on her cheek, than her eye caught the countenance of her husband, which equally to her surprise and displeasure, was no longer decked in grateful and affectionate jocosity, as she had reasonably hoped to meet it, but wore an aspect of uneasiness and gloom that seemed to speak of anything rather than difficulties overcome and a heart at ease. "'What's in the wind now?' thought she, as she made the last step of the descent, and swung herself with a graceful sort of impetus round the final banister, in order to follow the direction in which her husband's eye and the movement of his head seemed to marshal her. The moment the major perceived that she understood his signals, he walked rapidly on, and at the distance of some paces disappeared within a door, through which she also passed the minute after, and then, with equal surprise and alarm, saw him shut it and bolt it behind her. "'What on earth is the matter now, Major Allen Barnaby?' said she, knitting her brows and looking at least a dozen years older than she had done a few minutes before. "'You surely have not found time enough to get into another scrape?' "'You should say, my dear, that I have not found time enough to get out of an old one. How much or how little danger threatens me at this moment I am really unable to say.' but perhaps when I have told you exactly what I have heard, you may be able to give me better advice than I could give myself. You know, my dear, what a confidence I have in your judgment, and upon my honor, I never wanted a little help more in my life, for hang me if I know which way to turn or what to do. Let me hear the worst at once, she replied with some slight movement of impatience. I dare say I shall find a way out of the scrape just as easily as you found your way into it. Heaven grant you may, my dear, but I shall say you are a witch if you do. The case is this. I got up this morning while you were still fast asleep, and on coming downstairs I found a whole bevy of gentlemen tipplers taking their morning dram at the bar. I threw a pretty sharp look amongst them to find out if any of our late fellow passengers were of the set, and presently became perfectly certain that there was not one. Whereupon I drew near among the rest, and although, as you know well enough, I am no great dram-drinker, I called for a glass like the others, that I might see and hear a little what was going on. The first words which regaled my ears were these. A pretty considerable queer speck old Gabriel Monkton seems after this go. Did you hear about it, Colonel? 
The personage thus addressed was no other than our right worshipful landlord, and he replied with all the dignity of his military rank and his distinguished office united, Hear of it? I expect I did. Gabriel has promised me I don't know how many votes if I will keep a sharp lookout after the females. And that I promised, and that I'll do, provided I can be availed of what they are like and where they are lodged. The man himself, him what he suspects, you know, is still snug enough on board, he told me, but the woman and another man belonging to them was to land last night on account of our glorious leg disagreeing with their English stomachs. If it wasn't for Gabriel's telling me the man was still aboard, and that the man had but one man with them, I should be apt to suspect that we had got the very identical set in the house at this moment. Now, wife, what do you say to that, by way of a pleasant hint? And how, in the D-blank's name, are we to steer clear through such a confounded set of breakers as it is easy to see ahead? You have not told me all as yet, Major, said my heroine anxiously. You have not told me if any of the party took particular notice of you. Not the least in the world, he replied. Half a dozen of them began immediately to talk together, and having paid my fip for my glass to a young urchin who was acting as deputy to his father at the bar, I suffered three or four fresh stragglers to push on before me to listen to the long-winded colonel's history of all that was known or suspected about myself, and quietly withdrew from the infernal set without appearing to attract the least attention from anyone. Now then, wife, that is all and everything I have got to tell you and I shall be very happy in my turn to listen to anything and everything you may wish to say upon it by way of commentary. It was at least two minutes before Mrs. Allen Barnaby answered this appeal, but so eloquently meditative was her countenance that the Major, notwithstanding the urgent necessity he felt there was for immediate action, betrayed no symptom of impatience, but waited in perfect silence till his charming oracle spoke. This is just about the worst job we've had, Major, she said at length for as sure as you stand there, we shall have a regular hue and cry after us throughout the country, and as it is not possible to stir an inch without being examined by every man, woman, and child you meet, as if you were before a court of justice, it will certainly be no easy matter to keep clear of discovery. However, it won't do, Donny, to stand still in despair and cry all's over. We are neither of us fit for that sort of pitiful work. Faint heart, they say, never won fair lady and I am sure faint heart never saved bold gentlemen. Do you remember, my dear, the sort of dress and demeanor which your lively fancy induced you to assume when you were first introduced to my relations the Huberts at Brighton? Oh, yes, perfectly, said the Major briskly. I thought it advisable to be in the saint line then, in order to assimilate myself to the character of the former Mr. O'Donagough. Exactly so, my dear, said his wife. But though you remember this, I am sure you do not remember, for it was impossible you could judge of it, the inconceivable alteration which this dress and manner made in your appearance. It is impossible any disguise could be more complete. What I should propose, therefore, is that you resume this for the time we remain in the country, for let rumors be circulated about you either from New Orleans, Big Gang Bank, Philadelphia, New York, or this nasty, hateful Lake Erie. This disguise would completely baffle them all, for in neither of those places, my dear, did you think proper to appear at all in the likeness of a saint. And besides, you know, there is not a country in the whole world where it would be likely to answer better in every respect. For, while we were at the Springs, I heard a dozen different histories at the very least, all showing the extraordinary respect and veneration in which the travelling evangelical preachers are held. 
They told me that if a new dancing girl and a new preacher appeared in a town at the same time, it was always a very close-run contest between them, and generally ended by all the gentlemen following the dancer, and all the ladies the preacher. Now, this would do for you exactly, Donny, because none of your little tricks have been played off upon the ladies, and therefore none of them, go where we may, will be likely to find you out. But surely, my dear, you don't expect me actually to set up for a preacher, cried the Major, looking a good deal alarmed. And pray, why not, Major Allen Barnaby, replied his high-spirited wife. What in the world should prevent you? Then not having your universal and commanding genius, Mrs. Allen Barnaby, he rejoined, adding very gravely, I have not the slightest objection to shave close, moustache, favori, and all, if you advise it, and I shall not wonder if, in fact, it were to prove the very best thing I could possibly do. But as to mounting a pulpit, I must confess I do not feel a call for it. I am convinced that I should stand staring at the congregation like a fool without being able to say a word. Nonsense, Major. When did you ever find it difficult to palaver? You are the very man for it. We will just contrive, if we can, that you shall hear some high-flying preacher once, and when you see how it is done, you will find it easy enough to set off in the same style I'll be bound for you. Well then, set about it, my Barnaby. You are a wonder of a woman, and I believe you could make me do anything in the world that you took it into your head to command. Just say when I must shave, and where I must go, and what I must preach, and you shall find me a perfect pattern of obedience. You are a perfect pattern of wisdom, Donny, I will say that for you. A wise man, when he is sinking, always holds fast, I take it, to what he thinks is most likely to float, and that you do this, my good major, I believe nobody will deny, and for that very reason, my dear, you will always find me ready and willing to hold out a helping hand to save you. Upon my soul, I have found it so, and I should more than once have been puzzled to know what to do without you, there is no denying it. Now then, I presume you mean to be off from this place directly. There's a boat goes by to Sandusky at eleven this morning, and another at nine in the evening, but of course the first will suit us best. Do you really think so, Major? said my heroine, looking in his face with an eye that laughed very saucily. If you do, I must confess that I do think you want a little of my assistance. "'What do you mean?' said the Major, slightly frowning, but at the same time, firmly resolved to preserve his good humour, let his lady say what she would. "'What can you mean by saying that?' "'I mean, Major Allen Barnaby,' replied his wife with mock solemnity, "'that, if it be your will and pleasure to decide upon this mode of proceeding, the chances are about a thousand to one in favour of our being followed to Sandusky as suspicious characters.' "'I have no doubt of it, Mrs. Allen Barnaby.' "'replied the persecuted gentleman, rather tartly. "'My own opinion is that the chances are about two thousand to half a one in favour "'of the agreeable catastrophe to which you allude.' "'Then why risk it, my love?' said his wife, "'hanging her head sentimentally and speaking with great tenderness of accent. "'And how to avoid it?' he returned precisely with the same attitude and tone. "'Wait one instant and I will tell you,' said his wife placing her finger on her forehead and closing her eyes to give her thoughts uninterrupted range within. Having remained thus alone, as it were, for half a moment, she said, In this way you must avoid it. Let us both immediately return to our room, you mounting the stairs first, and I behind you. No particular notice has been directed your way as yet. All was bustle and confusion when we came in last night, 
the waiters had just time enough to bring us all we called for, and as it seemed, no more, for, if you remember, there was not one of them that remained in the room a moment after the wine, or whatever it was, had been set down. This morning, by your account, there was no more leisure for curious examination than there was last night, so that I flatter myself you and your whiskers are not as yet much known by sight among them. Having reached our room, Donny, we will lock the door, and then I will shear you as close as a May-day lamb, in which operation your razor shall assist my scissors. And then, Major Allen Barnaby, I will open the smallest of the three great trunks, and prove to you that, if I do upon some occasions expend a great deal in dress, with a view to the honour and respectability of my family, there are others when the most thoughtful economy in this respect is the rule of my actions. Do you remember, my dear, the black and grey suit in which you dined at the house of my nephew, General Hubert, at Brighton? Yes, perfectly, replied the Major, smiling. But it is considerably more than a year ago that I last saw it, and it is quite beyond hope that you should have it here. Mrs. Allen Barnaby laid her hand upon the bolt of the door to withdraw it, saying, Come upstairs with me, Major, and you shall see. But cough a little as you pass the bar, and hold your handkerchief to your face. We must not, just for the present, display your magnificent mustachios. Thus instructed, and displaying in all ways the most exemplary obedience, the major left the little room in which the above conversation had passed, mounted the stairs, and, closely followed by his lady, entered the apartment in which they had passed the night, and in which Tornorino had seen their voluminous luggage carefully lodged. Having reached this sanctuary, and cautiously secured its door, not a moment was lost by either in performing the business they had in hand and while she drew forth a complete suit of very evangelical-looking attire, complete even to the white cravat and grey and black shot silk waistcoat, he set to work upon his forest-like face, and hewed and mowed away till he was as well shaven and shorn as any reasonable Christian could desire. In the finishing this rather laborious work, she not only found time to assist him, but as she did so, so enlightened him as to what was next to be done as follows. Now then, Donny, with that dress yonder carefully put on, and your low-crowned hat upon this nice grey head, I will defy all the Gabriel Monktons in Yankeeland to identify you. So far so good. But now listen to the rest. I suspect, by the way I have seen the servant girls coming and going, that there is a back stairs at the end of the long passage just outside our door. While you are dressing, I'll just have a peep as to that matter." If I am right, we know, of course, that it will open to the back of the house, because the passage runs straight through it. As soon as you get downstairs, don't look in a bustle, but move quietly on, like a patient saint as you are, to find your way out of the back door. This done, you may easily, of course, regain the street, and then make for the Franklin Hotel, which you heard them say at the wharf was on the other side of the landing place. When you get there... Order breakfast for yourself and dinner for some friends who are amusing themselves by looking about, and tell them that your party are going on to Sandusky by the nine o'clock boat. Meanwhile, we will breakfast here, and announce that we are going off by the eleven o'clock boat, and just as it comes in sight, I will have all the luggage taken down to the wharf. I will pay the bill, and tell the people that I expect you will meet us on board, but that if you happen to come in after we have left the house, they must send you after us in all haste. All this being provided for, the rest follows without difficulty. When we get down to the wharf at eleven o'clock, we shall, of course, have the dreadful disappointment of finding no Major Allen Barnaby there, whereupon I shall order the porter to set down the baggage and leave it, and if he, 
or any of the clamorous waiters invite us to turn back again, I shall pay them handsomely, but decline the invitation, stating, as my reason, that I prefer being near the landing-place. And then the Franklin Hotel porters will, of course, offer their services, and ere midday, my dear, I shall, I doubt not, be safely reunited, not to Major Allen Barnaby, but to the Reverend Mr. O'Donagough. Excellent, perfect, and worthy of yourself, exclaimed the Major. But the leather labels bearing our names at full length on the boxes. They will be all lost, my dear, before we get to the Franklin Hotel. No single circumstance of this admirably arranged plan went wrong. Mrs. Allen Barnaby had exactly time enough for all she had to do before the eleven o'clock boat was announced. Tornorino and Patty were made to be perfectly au fait of the scheme. The bill, though a high one, was paid without a murmur, and the only recollection of the party that remained at the Washington Hotel was that they were a set of English spendthrifts who drank champagne unaccountable, but made no bones about paying for it. End of chapters 40 and 41